Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me back to the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be in chapter 6 this morning, Uh, Matthew chapter 6, looking today at instructions on giving, praying, and fasting. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute. We're supposed to still be in chapter 5, and you would be right. Because last time we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, we dealt with the passage on anger in chapter 5. Where Jesus said, you've heard it said that uh, you're not to murder, but I say to you, even if you've been angry at somebody, you've committed murder. And so the very next passage we're to look at is lust, adultery, and marriage. And this weekend staff meeting, uh, Kevin reminded me that many of the youth would be away this weekend. And he said, I would love for the youth to hear those topics on things like lust and adultery and marriage. Because folks, that's right where they live, isn't it? We're in such a pornographic, such a pornographic and sensual society today. And adults, it's our fault. We've allowed it. But our adults, our youth live there with that every day, everything in their face. And so I'm going to come back and deal with those topics. We're going we're to mix things up. We'll look at chapter 6 today, verses 1 uh, down to verse 18. And we'll only make it to verse 8, so don't worry, okay? not going to keep you here throughout the race this afternoon. But we're going to deal with all these topics together in chapter 6 because all of them deal with practicing your righteousness before men. That's the common theme theme that holds the first part of chapter 6 together. And then we'll jump back to chapter 5 and deal with all those things that are held together by the common thread where Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And so we're going to deal with these things in the units in which they exist. But stand today for the reading of God's Word, please. Jesus began there in verse 1 saying, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Father, we pray that you would teach us your word today. May your word be that lamp unto our feet that the psalmist spoke of. Lord Jesus, you said that when you ascended back to the Father, you would send another, the Holy Spirit, and he would be our teacher and our counselor and our comforter. And he would show us those things that we need to know. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit might open each heart and mind today that your word would be illuminated to us, that we would see it and understand it perhaps better than, than previously before. Lord, we thank you for the invitation that we have in your word to pray, to give, to fast. But Lord, we pray that these religious exercises that we do would be in order to commune with you and know you and to help our fellow man and never to be done in such a way to call attention to ourselves. May we worship you in spirit and in truth. Speak to each heart here today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now here we have three topics in chapter 6 that are all tied together by, by the common theme that our acts of righteousness are not to be done in such a way that any attention would be called to us. Now folks, I want you to think about it. When you do something and do it well, generally what do you and I desire in life? You want something to be noticed that you've done well. If you've done something right, you want it to be noticed. For instance, I dare say there is somebody in this building this morning that this very week at work, you might be standing before all the employees in your company and you will be presenting some PowerPoint presentation and some new vision that your department is going to be doing. And as you stand there this week and you give that presentation, you've been preparing and you've been practicing and you want it to go well. And it'd be encouraging to you if somebody walked up to you and said, I, I really understand now the vision that our department and the company is trying to do and I, you can count me in. I want to sign on. I want to be a part of that. Well done this morning. You would like to hear something like that. 
or a young man is going to get engaged and he's going to present a diamond to, to his girlfriend and what's he hoping that she'll do? Well, obviously, yes, that she'll say yes. What else is he hoping she'll do with that ring? That she'll put it on and she'll be proud of it. She'll be excited to have that diamond and she'll show it off to others that it would be the type of diamond that she'd want to show off to others that they would see it, right? That's what he hopes for. But when it comes to faith, Jesus says in these verses that there are certain things that we had better not do in order to be seen. Even if they are seen because we're in public worship, our motive is not in order to be seen. So in this chapter, what Jesus is doing is addressing the motive of your heart, the motive of my heart. Now the three topics that he dealt with here are the topics of giving and praying and fasting. Now folks, those would have been the big three in the Jewish mindset. The big three, praying and giving and fasting. Because those were the big three in Jewish life, those were the three areas where the scribes and the Pharisees would try to show off and do things in order to be seen. And in each case, Jesus says here, do not be like the hypocrites. Now, if you've been with us very long, you've heard me describe this, this term hypocrites before. It's nothing new to you. You've heard, you've heard me say this a couple of times, in fact. Hypocrites in ancient Greece were the play actors in the theaters. In, in the Greek drama, there were pegs fastened on posts that would be near the stage. And on those pegs would be hanging a series of different masks. And in a Greek drama, in an ancient Greek drama, you might be the bad guy in the first part of the play and the good guy in the last part of the play, and so you'd have a good mask and a bad mask, and, and when it was your turn to go on stage, you'd walk by that peg and you'd take the mask off appropriate to that scene, and you'd put that on, and you'd go out on stage, and you would play that part, and hopefully play that part very well, and then you would go behind the curtain and somebody else come out, then the next scene you'd come out, put on the mask of the other guy you were playing. You were a hypocrite. You were a play actor. You were wearing two different faces. You were two-faced. That's where that idea came from. A hypocrite was somebody who was two-faced. They were very talented. They were well compensated. They were respected in society because they were a good actor down at the theater. Now over time, of course, the word hypocrite moved into the negative realm where it resides today. And so to be two-faced today, to be a hypocrite today, is certainly, there's nothing positive, there's nothing redemptive about that. We always use that term today in a negative fashion. Jesus said, do not be like the hypocrites who only do what they do in order to be seen by men. One of our early and best Baptist scholars, Dr. John Broadus, 
Now, he was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. A lot of people say Charles Spurgeon was was the best Baptist preacher Baptist life has ever produced. But according to Charles Spurgeon himself, John Broadus was the best Baptist scholar and pastor we've ever produced. John Broadus points out the Greek verb for to be seen here is a very strong verb. The root of it is the place where our word theater comes from. Our word theater. The Pharisees were hypocrites. They were actors. They were making theater out of their faith. In these verses, what Jesus is doing, He is condemning all this. And He is continuing that theme that He underscored back in verse 20 of chapter 5 that our righteousness has got to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees if we want to see the kingdom of heaven. Now folks, what a shock those words must have been to many in Jesus' audience. You see, contrary to what we might think today, the Pharisees were, were not the bad guys to a lot of people in the first century. They had developed during the times between the Testaments, the 400 silent years that we call them. The 400 silent years in reality were anything but silent. There was a whole lot of stuff going on. The silent years are also known as the second temple period. You see, the first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And then after a 70-year exile in Babylon, the Jews came back and they rebuilt the temple and they rebuilt uh, Jerusalem. And so the second temple period would have gone all the way from approximately 530 B.C. all the way up to 70 A.D. That was the second temple period because, again, the temple had been rebuilt. And then in 70 A.D., we know what happened, that just as Jesus said it would happen, the Romans came in in 70 A.D. and utterly destroyed Jerusalem again and, and tore down the temple. But from 530 B.C. to 70 A.D. is the second temple period. Well, the Jews had learned a hard lesson during that second temple period as they'd come out of exile for 70 years. They realized that the reason God had sent them away into exile is because they had been disobedient. They had broken the Sabbath laws and so God in the exile was reclaiming the Sabbath rest of the land. And, and also they had become idolaters. And so when they, when they came out of the exile period, they were bound and determined that something like that was never, ever going to happen to them again. And so this group known as the Pharisees rose up during that second temple period. And, and the word Pharisee literally means the separated ones. And they were going to be the heroes. They were going to ensure that never again would the Jewish nation be guilty of breaking the Sabbath laws or committing adultery or breaking any of the other laws for that matter. But then by the time of Jesus, so much of their religious practice had become a matter of simply looking right on the outside. 
They wanted to look right on the outside and put everybody else down. And that's why Jesus called them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Because on the outside they looked all nice and neat and clean and tidy, but on the inside, by what they were doing, they were showing that their lives had never been redeemed. They had never truly been touched and changed by the grace of God. They, they had never become different from the inside out. Again, all their emphasis was on the outside. They became hardened legalists who put tremendous burdens on the average man. They would attach all kinds of traditions to the laws that they already had. And all these traditions that they would attach uh, to God's laws, these traditions nobody trying to make an honest, decent living every day could have kept all these laws of cleanliness or Sabbath or whatever else it was. For instance, let's say it's 5.55 on a Friday and the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath is about to begin at 6 p.m. And you've come in from the fields and your donkey is loaded down with a big old pack on it. And you get in at 5.55 and you get down underneath that animal and you're unhooking all the straps and the ropes and you're lifting that burden off of that donkey it's going to take you more than five minutes, so guess what? You're going to be working on the Sabbath. But here's the dilemma the Pharisees said. You leave that pack on that donkey, and you're going to be making him work on the Sabbath. So you're still going to be guilty. You're in a lose-lose situation, according to them. So what was their solution? Get down underneath the animal, undo the straps, undo the ropes, do that quickly before the Sabbath began. And then if the donkey kind of happens to wiggle that burden off and it falls off of them because you've undone the straps, you're not guilty. They had all kinds of ridiculous little stuff like that that they attached to all the laws of God and nobody could live that way. Nobody out operating a farm or doing anything could live under all of these regulations that the Pharisees put on them. And so how did the Pharisees begin looking at everybody? They began looking at the common man as though you were nothing more than the chaff that the judgment of God was going to blow away in the day of judgment. But again, folks, I say all this to point out that the Pharisees were heroes to some because they were going to save Israel from ever going into exile again because they broke the laws. That's how they started. Isn't it tragic sometimes how something that starts with good intentions can sort of morph and become something that was never intended to be? That's what happened with them. Well, Jesus came along and he saw right through their hypocrisy and he called them out. He said on one occasion, you travel land and seas to make one convert and when you make one convert, you make him twice the child of the devil that you are. I think you can begin to see how Jesus and the Pharisees sort of started button heads and coming into conflicts on things. Well, in the first 18 verses of chapter 6, we see where Jesus directly took on the Pharisees in the big three. 
The big three again, giving, praying, and fasting. Now what we're going to learn in these verses is that our worship, our religious practice, whether public or private, is to be done from the heart. Whatever we do is to be done from the heart and never with the motive of simply being seen by men and praised by men. First thing I want you to jot down this morning in your notes, the instructions concerning giving. Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, in Jewish life, giving alms, giving to the poor was an act of charity that would set you off as being a very godly person. If you gave alms, if you gave to the needy, you were viewed as a very righteous person. Now, one of the Jewish books that Protestants don't consider as part of the canon of Scripture, and rightly so, I think, is the book of Tobit. Tobit is one of the books of the Jewish wisdom writings that that developed during the time between the two testaments. It's part of what we call the Apocrypha. Now some of those books that make up the Apocrypha may contain some good wisdom sayings, but if you read them, I think you'll see why we don't include them as part of the canon of Scripture. For one thing, Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament never quoted from any of the books of the Apocrypha. They quoted from all the other different sections of the Old Testament. You read the New Testament, you see a whole bunch of uh, Old Testament quotations within the New Testament, but you don't find Jesus or the apostles quoting from the Apocrypha. That ought to tell us something. They didn't consider them Scripture. And what's more, you read many of the books of the Apocrypha and you you see the theology there, how it's different from the rest of the Bible and, and sometimes, in fact, contradicts the rest of the Bible and you see why the books of the Apocrypha were not included in the canon of Scripture. Again, Tobit is one of those books. It's an excellent example when it comes to almsgiving. In the book of Tobit, in chapter 5 and chapter 12, I believe it is, Tobit and his son Tobias are instructed, they're even commanded that they are to give alms to the poor and if they will give alms to the poor, they will secure a righteous place for themselves in the kingdom of heaven. Again, bad theology. Because the Bible points out there's only one way to go to heaven and his name is Jesus. But you can, you can see how the Jews respected giving alms and they would put a lot of emphasis on giving alms to the poor. Now again, as Dr. John Broadus points out in his commentary on Matthew, because Protestants have tried to stay so far away 
from the Apocrypha and from Roman Catholic teachings that include the Apocrypha, we've downplayed the giving of alms perhaps too much. It's important to help the needy, and we need to understand that. That was a very important part of Jewish worship. Now, being such an important part of Jewish worship, it was one of the areas of worship that could suffer from a lot of abuses. The Pharisees would sound the trumpet. Now, folks, that is a figure of speech. It is a euphemism. Scholar, the... the, uh, uh, Sort of a thought has gotten out there that the Pharisees would hire trumpeters when they were going to give a big gift and they would literally, those trumpeters would really literally blow a trumpet announcing that this person coming through the door was about to give a big gift. Now contrary to that rumor, scholars have looked in vain for such evidence and not been able to find it. Alfred Edersheim and his and his massive book on Jewish customs of the day uh, as Broadus points out too he points out a rather fanciful interpretation that in the temple there were boxes and on the top of the box there was a big bell shaped like a trumpet and they would come in and they would throw their coins into the bell of that uh, box and, and they would ring the bell so to speak they would blow the trumpet and Broadus says you know that sounds good that's a fanciful interpretation but again no evidence that that actually took place. Euphemism, blowing the trumpet. A euphemism. What's Jesus pointing out? That there were indeed some, however they did it, whatever their form of pomp and circumstance was, there were some, when they were getting ready to give big generous gifts, it would be known to all the others around that what this person was about to give was this big generous gift. And Jesus says, don't do that. You know, I can talk about it now, even though I'm not sure the person would want me to, but I think most of us know our, our biggest, most benevolent giver in the church for decades now went home to be with the Lord this year. Whenever he gave gifts, you know how it was announced to the church, right? An anonymous benefactor has given such and such. Everybody knew who the anonymous benefactor was, but it was his heart. He didn't want attention drawn to him for giving that. He never wanted his name on any of our buildings or land. He, he, never, wanted, he never wanted plaques. You know, there are some churches, somebody gives something, and they want to put a plaque on everything. You ever been a part of a church like that? Everything in the church, there's a plaque. There, every Sunday school room is named after somebody. Oh, that's the room that so-and-so gave all the furnishings to. And, and a church gets in bondage to that. You can't ever do anything with that because that's the room or that's the furniture or the pew that so-and-so gave. 
I've got a friend that used to pastor a First Baptist church, very traditional, very formal, and they would do this. They would have people give things, plaques all over uh, stuff, and and the church became in bondage to it and is still in bondage to it, and nobody will do anything about it. If you want to move the pulpit for a wedding or a Christmas cantata, you may can't do that. It's got to go literally before a special committee because years ago, so-and-so gave that pulpit, and it's got to sit right there and not be moved. The gift and the person giving the gift becomes the focus. My first church out of seminary in the country, lovely congregation, first Friday night of of every month, our fellowship hall became the meeting place for a big community-wide potluck dinner. And the Methodists would come, the Brethren would come, the Presbyterians would come, as well as the Baptists. It was a rural community. Everybody knew everybody. And we'd get together and just have a wonderful time of fellowship together. And we ate on real china that somebody had donated. And in a business meeting, the ladies stood up and said, we're washing dishes. We're not enjoying the fellowship. Can we buy paper products? One old gentleman stood to his feet and said, I'll have you know, brother and sister so-and-so gave that china X number of years ago and we've got to use their gift. And the lady said, that's fine, but men, you're going to be in the kitchen washing the dishes because we're missing all the fellowship and we're going to start fellowshipping with everybody. Guess what? We bought the paper products. A gift can be so important and so celebrated in and of itself that the gift and the giver giving it becomes the focus. But Jesus said, no, stop it. Don't give your gifts that way. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You know what that's the image of? That's the image. Here's a guy going down to the temple one day, okay? And you'll be my beggar, right? You'll be my poor guy. But he's, Jonathan's at the temple and he's got his plate or his cup or his basket and, and, and he's, he's begging for alms. And I'm, and I'm walking by him. Jesus says, I'm to give in such a way that I reach into my cloak or my pocket. And as I pass him going into the temple, I just kind of drop something in in such an insignificant way that it's as though my left hand didn't even know that my right hand was doing it. Again, folks, a figure of speech because unless something's wrong with you up here, your left hand's going to know what your right hand just did. But you see the point that he's saying. It's to be given as though your left hand didn't know what your right hand was doing. And then Jesus went on to say, Your Father in heaven will see and he will reward you. See, some of these folks were doing what they were doing so they would be recognized by men. And folks, I want to tell you something. In church, there are certain things you can do. If you want to do it in order to be seen by men, you can do that and men will praise you. But Jesus is saying you need to realize that is where your reward before God stops. You wanted the accolades of men. Well, guess what, buddy? You got the accolades of men, but you're not going to be rewarded by God later on. You got what you were after. So he's challenging us to examine our hearts in this area of giving how we give. 
Give in such a way that it's between you and God and trust God to be the one who rewards you. Well, he moves on next to give us instructions concerning praying. Picking up in verse 5. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room. Some translations say the inner room or the closet, and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He's going to show us the prohibition and then the prescription. In other words, how not to pray and then how to pray. So let's look at those. Let's look at the prohibition first, how not to pray. Verse 5 and verse 7. He says, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. And then down in verse 7, they, they heap up these, these uh, repetitious many words. Do not be like them. In, in verse 5, Jesus begins by saying, when you pray. Now, there's an assumption there that a child of God who has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, somebody who has encountered salvation, they've come to faith in Jesus Christ and you've been born again and you have a relationship with God, it is assumed that you are going to want to commune in prayer with your Heavenly Father. A Christian who never wants to pray ought to be an oxymoron. Because folks, think about it. When we are saved, who comes to live in us? The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And Paul says in Romans 8 that he enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. There is this desire now, there's this longing in the heart of a child of God to want to commune with God. That ought to be normal and natural. But Jesus says, when you do that, don't pray with wrong motives. And he goes on to explain the illustration of what he's talking about. The Jews would have different times of prayer throughout the day. Now, by the way, some of us could be helped by that. If we had certain times throughout the day that we would get along with God, it would remind us to be more people of prayer. Nothing wrong with having times of prayer. Daniel in the Old Testament, you'll remember, he went up to his room and he opened his windows toward Jerusalem and he prayed. But there were some of these folks that would plan their trips into town around the times of prayer so that they would get to a certain intersection at one of those times of prayer. The word for street in verse 5 is not talking about some little narrow back alleyway, but the word literally refers to a broad road and a major intersection. And here you are, a Pharisee, and you're planning your trip into town. So right at the Jewish time of prayer, you arrive at that busy intersection and you stop to observe that time of prayer and everybody's able to see you and some people might be tempted to say there's brother Joe look at how godly he is well brother Joe may not be godly at all he just wanted the attention of man and he got it 
Again, in verse 5, Jesus says they have their reward already. Secondly, he says we, not, we must not pray with vain repetitions. Verse 7, the word here is batalageo. Batalageo, it refers to a babbling on and on and on. In the Greek, that combination of words is what is referred to as a onomatopoetic word. An onomatopoetic word is the word that by its very definition it describes, it sounds like what it's talking about. Batalogeo almost sounds like somebody's ba 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 babbling. From Theodore Bayes' commentary many centuries ago, the phrase vain repetition entered into the English text of the King James Version. The Gentiles referred to here were the pagans who had all of their idols and their false gods and the way that they would pray is they would, do, they would have all these incantations and all these phrases. And when they prayed to their idols and their false gods, they thought if they could dial up the right combination of all those incantations, then, then their deity would hear them and answer their prayer. Does that remind you of anybody in the Old Testament? Something he faced. How about Elijah on Mount Carmel as he was dealing with the prophets of Baal? You remember the prophets of Baal? Uh, Elijah said, the God who answers by fire, he's God. You guys go first. And so the Bible says all day long they were crying out to Baal. And I can imagine Elijah just sitting back and he's having fun with it. He's laughing at him. He finally says, what? Is Baal not listening? Is he not home? Has he gone on a journey? Is he asleep? And they were doing all these incantations to the point of even cutting themselves and dancing around. Folks, that's what the pagans would do. The pagans. And Jesus said, you don't need to do that because your Father knows what you need. You don't need all the, that, that repetition and vain repetition in your prayers. You don't need to think that you've got to dial up. Uh, there's some kind of order of my words. There's some kind of phrases I've got to use. If God's going to hear me pray, I've got to do this or that, or otherwise He won't hear me. No, Jesus says, your heavenly Father hears you. Now, folks, listen to me. He is not forbidding you and I going before God on a daily basis and praying continually about some burden you might have on your heart. He's not talking about that. Jesus himself went into the Garden of Gethsemane and when he did right before he was arrested, he prayed three times that the cup might be removed from him and it wasn't. But he prayed repeatedly. And he taught us as his disciples to ask and keep on asking and pray and keep on pray, seek and keep on seeking and knock and keep on knocking. And so he's not saying here that we can't ask for... you. For instance, you may have a child that you're praying for or a grandchild that you're praying for. Maybe you've got a prodigal and you're praying every single day for that prodigal. You might be asking, is Jesus telling me I can't do that? No, not at all. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's just pointing out that we don't need to try to dial up combinations to get to God. God hears us and He already knows. Well, then he tells us the prescription, how we are to pray, beginning there in verse 6. Now, first of all, let me set the context of this. Luke's gospel tells us why Jesus 
gave this instruction. The disciples were so impressed with the prayer life of Jesus, they wanted to be able to pray like he did. Remember how Mark's gospel, Mark 135 says, Jesus went alone to a, to a remote place before daybreak and he shut himself off from the world and even the disciples and he got alone with his heavenly Father and everybody was looking for him. And when they finally found him, they said, Lord, where have you been? Everybody's looking for you. Don't you realize that? It was Jesus' priority to get along with his Father. And finally, when the disciples recognized this, they said, Lord, teach us how to pray the way you pray. And so that's what these verses are all about. He tells them, first of all, that genuine prayer must be between the person and God. He says, go into your room and shut the door. Folks, when we pray, we need to shut ourselves off from the world and shut ourselves away unto God. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. Here again, a caution. Jesus is not forbidding all public prayer. Jesus himself prayed publicly. The early church prayed publicly. Acts chapter 4, they gathered together and they had a public prayer meeting. Paul in 1 Timothy 2 said when we gather together to worship, the first thing that we're to do is we're to pray publicly for our leaders. It's not against public praying. But what Jesus is pointing out, the bulk of our prayer life is, is to be private. Whatever we do in public is just the overflow of what we do privately. If all week long you know that you've got to pray in Sunday school next week and you're panicking about that and you're going to write out a prayer. Now, this is not against written prayer. I have nothing against written prayers if it's from the heart. But if you want to write out a prayer just so you can stand up next week, because oh, uh-oh, i got to pray, and you want to read something in public that sounds all flowery and nice, you have no private prayer life, and you're just kind of panicking trying to prepare to do something publicly next week, Jesus says, that's not what we're to do. That's not what we're to do. Prayer should be like our worship. What we do publicly is only the overflow of what we do every other day privately. Secondly, genuine prayer must be based upon the belief that God cares. Verse 8, God cares. We don't have to wear God out. He's there, He hears, He cares, and He loves you. We don't have to pry His hands open. And then thirdly, genuine prayer must be addressed to the right source. Verse 9, our Father who is in heaven. Now folks, think about that. He is both transcendent and eminent. He's other than us. He's greater. He sits above the heavens and the earth. He's, he's majestic, sovereign God, but also He's eminent. He's with us. He is our Father. Now, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, you can't claim that. We saw last week in the book of Hebrews that it is only through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that we're able to go into the Holy of Holies. 
But if you have that relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, who died for your sin and bore your sin, and you have God's forgiveness, then you can know that every day of your life you can go into the very presence of God. And as you get there in the presence of God, God knows you, He knows everything about you, and He cares for you. That's the assurance that we can have. John says in 1 John 5, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Isn't that beautiful? That's what prayer's to be. Getting alone with God. I have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ and pouring out my heart to him in private and being assured that as I'm praying, he knows my needs and he will supply my needs because he is my heavenly father. I am not alone in this world. He is my heavenly father. And you as a believer can have that assurance. Haddon Robinson is known all over the country in seminaries and universities for his teaching and homiletics, preaching. One of the most famous preaching professors in America is Haddon Robinson. Haddon tells the story, he says, when his kids were little toddlers, they would have a game. And in that game, his children would sit on his lap and he would put coins, he said usually just pennies, in his hand. And he would grasp them real tight and if his children could get them, they could have them. And so they would sit on his lap giggling and laughing. And, and one by one, they would take his fingers and they would prime open. And there'd be a penny. And his children, they'd laugh and they'd grab it. And he had one rule of thumb. And that was if they pried a finger open, he couldn't close it again and grasp the penny. They, they got the penny. And so one by one, they would pry each finger open and they would get all the pennies in his hand. And then what they would do, they'd jump off of his lap and go running down through the hall, giggling and laughing. Haddon said, you know, we go before God and it's like we're prying his fingers open oftentimes only to get pennies. God, I, I want another job. I got a good job, but I want another one. I want another car. I've got a good car. I just want another one. I want a, I want a nice new house. I got one. I just want another one. And so oftentimes we're trying to pry God's fingers open to only end up with pennies. And we forget that in prayer we had the opportunity to begin with of grasping the very hand of God. Don't lose sight of that. Don't just go after the pennies of the world. Go after a relationship with your heavenly Father. Would you stand please? And as you stand, I want to challenge you to do several things this week. First of all, first of all, I want to challenge you to find a spot, a spot, a place where you can get along with God and, and pray. What would be your inner chamber? What would be your closet? What would be your inner room that you could shut yourself away? 
Again, just a figure of speech for any place you can get alone and get private. Make sure you have such an inner chamber. And again, some of you may want to start designating some times of prayer throughout the day that whatever you're doing at that time of the day, you're going to stop and, you're, and that's going to be a time of prayer for you. As you do so, examine your heart and confess sin. Sin will hinder your prayer life. Deal with sin, confess it, repent of it, and then enjoy communion with God. I want you to understand that if you're his child through faith in Jesus Christ, you're adopted into his family. He's your father, and he is a perfect father. He cares. You don't have to dial up some special combination. Finally this morning, could I be talking to somebody who really doesn't understand what I'm talking about this morning because you don't have a time of communion with God. You don't even know what that means because you know in your heart of hearts you've never been saved. I want to challenge you to come to Christ today. By coming to Christ for salvation, you get everything else that Christ offers. You get that opportunity to go into God's presence through prayer and make your needs known. Come to Christ.